You know, I've, I've served in several churches over the years in different capacities, and, and it's an incredible blessing. And, and uh, Tim and Leslie and I were having a conversation the other night how a lot of churches that are rural like us and churches our size struggle just to find a piano player uh, for church. And, and we're incredibly blessed with uh, the, the amazing uh, group of musicians that God has brought us here at Carlton Baptist and be sure and, and tell them thank you for, for what they offer us and the offering they present before the Lord. So we're, uh, and, and today is one of those days uh, and these days come from time to time. Uh, I'm always anxious to get to the pulpit to preach. Um, but one thing uh, Lisa and I will always discuss during the week, uh, what I'm going to be preaching about and we want to be very careful to, to make sure that our theology, what we teach, matches, uh, matches our doxology, what we're singing. And, and so um, and I feel like this is almost one of those weeks where I don't have to preach at all because the music has already preached the text. Um, but I stayed up late finishing a sermon, so you have to hear it. Uh, so here we go. We're, we're headed into week three. Uh, in our 2020 journey through the book of John. And we're ending our look today at, at this kind of introductory portion of chapter 1 of the book of John. Now, I know that some of you might be thinking we're three weeks in and we're not even through chapter 1, and there's like 21 chapters here, so we should finish this series up around the year 2029 or so. Uh, so but I don't want you to worry too much because over the next couple of weeks, we're going to kind of work our way into some really interesting and thought-provoking portions of John, uh, all the time centering on one central idea. And we'll talk about this every week until we get through John, okay? Uh, John chapter 20, verses 30 through 31, reveals to us the central idea of the book of John. And it says this, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these, and when John says these, he's talking specifically about the words written in the book of John. These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. That's who Jesus is. And that by believing, you may have life in his name. That's his goal. That's what Jesus is about. John wants the people who read his book to know who Jesus is. And if you believe who Jesus is, you'll have life in his name. And by life, to clarify what John means by life, he means eternal life. Last week, we talked about what eternal life means. John 17, 3. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So this entire book, all the book of John, is about knowing who Jesus is and having this new transformed life that includes a never-ending relationship with God that's only available through Jesus Christ. Now, there's this really interesting phenomenon that I see in today's world. And I tried to kind of research a little this week and see who was writing about this and who's talking about it. Uh, uh, but I couldn't find really a term that I thought encapsulated this idea that I see in the world today. So I made up something. I'm calling it easy truthism. Uh, and it's this idea where we like to believe what we want to believe. Then in order to back up our thoughts... 
We'll like a, a meme on social media that supports how we feel. Or if we're really serious about a subject, we'll listen to a podcast we found that supports what we believe by completely agreeing with every preconceived notion we have. Uh, uh, I, I don't know how many of y'all listen. Do any of y'all listen to podcasts? Do any of y'all listen to podcasts? Valerie does. Henry does. There you go. Uh, so uh, some, a few of you have listened to him. I will occasionally listen to a podcast. I haven't really gotten that much into podcasts. Uh, if you don't know what a podcast is, you can go on the internet and it's kind of like a talk show, uh, uh, except you just listen. Uh, uh, to two people sit and talk about whatever topic they want to talk about and and uh, how they feel about it. They process their feelings about it and what they believe about it. And podcasts generally uh, center uh, around three or four different things. They talk. Podcasts are generally a lot about politics. Uh, there's a lot of podcasts out there about politics where two people sit down and talk about politics. Uh, and, and then there's um, and then there's uh, a, a lot of uh, podcasts about college football. Uh, where two people sit down and talk about college football. And then there's an awful lot of podcasts about murder out there for some reason. A lot of true crime podcasts. Those are the best, by the way. I really enjoy those. It's kind of like watching uh, the, the uh, uh, what, is, what is it, ID channel, the Investigation Discovery channel, uh, which I love, and Brittany hates me to watch that. Uh, but um, but uh, there's a lot of that. And then there's also a lot of podcasts about religion, where people talk about religion. And, and people sit and they talk about Jesus. And they talk about what their ideas are about who Jesus is, who he was back then, and who he is today. The problem with building our religious beliefs, and I know people who do this, with building our religious beliefs by things we find on the Internet, is that a lot of times we, we're presented with this thought that there are a lot of different truths out there, okay? And that it's okay in, in terms of Jesus for one person to believe this about Jesus and another person to believe this about Jesus and for people to have their own personal kind of Jesus, right? Um, they, they have this subjective truth, that's, this truth that's subject to how I feel, Right now, uh, have any of you? Uh, uh, I'm sure some of you have seen the movie Talladega Nights. Right? Some of you have seen that movie. I've never seen that movie because I'm a Baptist pastor, and I would never watch anything like that. Um, I just told a lie. Sorry. Um, but there's this scene at the dinner table where they're uh, saying grace, and there's this big argument because Ricky Bobby, the primary character, is praying to the baby Jesus. And there's this argument over whether or not Jesus he should pray to the baby Jesus uh, because Jesus was a man and he had a beard, right? And, 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 and Ricky Bobby says, I like the baby Jesus. That's the Jesus I like. And then his friend, Cal Naughton Jr., is his racing partner, a guy on his racing team, um, he has several different ideas he offers about who Jesus is. He says, I like to picture Jesus as a figure skater. He wears like a white outfit, and he does interpretive ice dances of my life's journey. And he says, uh, I like to picture Jesus in a tuxedo T-shirt because it says, I want to be formal, but I'm here to party. And then uh, my favorite, I like to think of Jesus with like giant eagle wings and singing lead vocals for Leonard Skinner with like an angel band. And, and so he's got these different ideas about Jesus that have absolutely no basis in Scripture. 
And that's kind of funny, but here's the thing. A lot of people formulate these ideas about Jesus in their minds that have no basis in Scripture, no basis in truth. So they devise what they call my truth, right? And that applies not just to religion, but to a lot of different areas. A lot of people firmly believe that it's the truth that the world is flat. The world is flat. Even though all of the scientific evidence points to the contrary, that's their truth, right? They believe that. Technology today offers us a million different ideas about who Jesus was. So the tendency is for people to formulate this kind of hodgepodge of ideas about who Jesus was based on these different truths. But the fundamental truths about Jesus are found in the book that was written about Jesus. So what we're doing through the book of John is trying to know Jesus and wrestling with Scripture so that we can develop a correct view of who Jesus was and who Jesus is. So last week, we talked about these people who presented eyewitness testimony about Jesus. And John sets forth this testimony in his book. And he talks about three witnesses in his writing. Himself, John the Apostle, uh, that's who he was. John the Baptist, and finally, Jesus himself. So he's operating on the testimony of eyewitnesses in order that we might ground ourselves in real, verifiable truth. We need to know the truth about who Jesus is. The person of Jesus doesn't change according to how we feel or how we imagine Jesus ought to be. So uh, what uh, John MacArthur wrote about it. He wrote about this easy truthism. He wrote, it is as damning to believe in the wrong Jesus as it is to believe in no Jesus. So it's vital that our truth be based not on our own ideas, not on our own preconceived notions, but on the firm foundation we find in Scripture, the book about Jesus. So thinking along those lines, thinking about this question, who is Jesus really? Let's take just a moment and let's clear our thoughts and focus our minds and get ready to unpack this truth about Jesus. Okay, let's pray. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for giving us a foundation of truth that we can build our lives on and we can also trust our eternities with it. Thank you that even though you know the truth about who we are, Every secret we hold in the dark and every lie we ever told and every scar we carry, you love us anyway. Thank you for forgiving us. God, forgive us for loving our sin. Thank you for extending to us this grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. We thank you that if we just trust in your love, if we trust in the truth, we can lay down every night and all of our sins of the day die. And we have the opportunity to live a new life in your power, in your name, every morning. Your mercies are new every day. You save us from our sins and you save us freely and fully and forever. All you require of us is that we trust you. So God, help our hearts. Heal our disease of sin. Heal our preconceived notions about you. Fix our eyes on the truth. Help us to trust you.
Amen. So, let's dive in right off the bat. Here's the big point, the truth that I want you to take home with you today. And if you've got your scripture journals or you've got your Bibles, you ought to write this down. Here's the truth I want you to take home today from the book of John. Jesus, the eternal word, is God in human flesh, glorious as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus, the eternal Word, is God in human flesh, glorious as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John wrote this in John 1.14, the first, uh, first portion of today's text. He said, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, I like the way Eugene Peterson phrased this. I'm not a huge fan of Eugene Peterson's theology, but I like the way he phrased this. He paraphrased John 1, 14, and he said this, The Word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. Okay? Jesus is God's Word wrapped in skin. He is God in the flesh. Theologians call this idea incarnation. Incarnation is this. It's not reincarnation like the Hindus believe in. uh, But incarnation is this. It's the belief that Jesus, who is the non-created second person of the Trinity, took on a human body and everything that is human and became both 100% man and 100% God. Jesus was 100% God. And he didn't just look like a man. He really was 100% man. He wasn't half God and half man. Like the result of some weird physical, spiritual interaction between God and Mary that produced a demigod. He wasn't a spirit that shape-shifted and looked like a man. He wasn't just a man that was a great moral teacher or that expressed God's thoughts. When Jesus was in Mary's belly, he was the infinite God taking on human flesh. Eternity intertwined with humanity. Now, how does that work? I don't know. I don't know. But that's exactly what the Bible teaches. Listen to this from Romans chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. Paul wrote this. He wrote, Concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the Son of God in power, according to the Spirit of holiness, by His resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Paul is talking about the two natures of Jesus. Jesus was fully man, 100% man. And we know this because He was descended from King David. Jesus was not a mythological Hercules who was half God and half man. He was pure flesh and blood. He had a family tree that could be traced back to King David. He had a mother and brothers and sisters just like you and me. He was born a baby. He cried for milk and he cried for his mama. He fell and scraped his knees and he laughed with friends. He ate and he drank and he cried at funerals. He understood the pain of human emotion, rejection, loneliness, humiliation. He had his skin torn apart by reeds and thorns and nails and speed. He bled real blood and he died a real death. He did it. He was 100% man. 
Walt Whitman was once asked how he so vividly described battlefield action and the emotions and pains of soldiers that he wrote about. And he responded, I do not ask what the wounded man feels. I become the wounded man. This is what our God, Jesus Christ, did for us. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. God moved into the neighborhood. Jesus was 100% man. But not only that, Jesus was also 100% God. And we know he was 100% God, according to Paul in Romans 1, because he was resurrected from the dead. In verse 3, Paul said that Jesus was born of the seed of David. That's the human side of Jesus. He's 100% man. Then in verse 4, Paul writes that Jesus has a divine side. He was declared with power to be the Son of God by his resurrection from the dead. He's 100% God. And the evidence of this, Paul says, is in his resurrection. A lot of historical figures live great lives and then they die. They might be great men, but they're just men. If Jesus' death had been the end of Jesus, he would have gone down in history as a great man, but he would have just been a man. Period. He's made unique by the resurrection. The empty tomb separates Jesus from any other historical figure. If Jesus was still dead, he would just be another great teacher or social activist who came to a bad end because people disagreed with him. If he's still dead, then Christianity is a hoax. And we're fools for believing it. But the fact is, it isn't a hoax. 2 Peter 1.16 says, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses to his majesty. Acts 1 says that he was present for 40 days after he was raised from the dead. And 1 Corinthians 15, 6 says that over 500 people encountered the resurrected Jesus face to face. In Hebrew culture, only two eyewitnesses were required to verify a fact in a court of law. So in a Hebrew court, Jesus' resurrection from the dead is a 4,000% certainty. It's a radical challenge to accept that someone could be 100% God, that they could rise from the dead. But it's the dividing line between Christianity and every other faith in the world. Tim Keller wrote, If Jesus rose from the dead, then you have to accept all that he said. If he didn't rise from the dead, then why worry about any of what he said? The issue on which everything hangs is not whether or not you like his teaching, but whether or not he rose from the dead. Now John goes on and he writes in John 1.14, And we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father. Whenever I meet somebody that knew my dad, they tell me that there's something about me that reminds them of him. They might think that I look like him or I laugh like him or I have the same kind of dry sense of humor he had. And I'm sure a lot of you have experienced the same thing, that, that whole uh, like father, like son uh, kind of thing. Um, but with Jesus, that principle is taken to infinite perfection. 
Jesus is the exact image of his father, the same substance. The Greek word uh, monogenes is used to describe him. He's not born, but he's begotten. He's monogenes. He's cut from the, not just cut from the same cloth, but Jesus is the same cloth as the father. If you've seen Jesus, you've not only seen someone like the father, you've seen the father. If you've seen Jesus, you've seen God. Now, there are all sorts of liberal theologians and Unitarians and Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons who will try to argue that Christ was not God in the flesh, but it's not our opinion. It's not a different version of truth. There's only one truth, okay? It's, it's, it's not our truth that they have a problem with, they have a problem with what the New Testament says about Jesus. Not what we say about Jesus, not what our ideas are. They have a problem with Scripture. The New Testament completely affirms the idea that if you saw Jesus, you'd observe the glory of God in the flesh. In John 5, 23, Jesus said that the Father had given all judgment to him so that all will honor the Son even as they honor the Father. In John 8:58, he claimed he was eternal in nature when he said, "Before Abraham was born, I am." In John 10:30, Jesus said, "I and the Father are one." In John 14:9, Jesus said to Philip, "He who has seen me has seen the Father." In Revelation 22:13, Jesus says, "I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last." the beginning and the end. Paul said this about Jesus in Colossians 2, 9. For in him, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Every bit of God dwells in Jesus. I'm going to say this, and undoubtedly this might ruffle some of your feathers because I'm sure some of you have people really close to you that are really misinformed about what the truth of Jesus is, but I'm going to say it anyway. You cannot say that you are a Christian and deny the deity of Jesus Christ. When people saw Jesus, they were eyewitnesses to the glory of God. John 1.14 says, He was the only Son from the Father. Full of grace and truth. So, if you're a sinner in need of a Savior, Jesus is full of grace. If you long for a trustworthy, faithful, real relationship with a God who doesn't change, if you long for a God who keeps His promises, Jesus is full of truth. Jesus was 100% grace. He is easy to approach. You don't have to clean yourself up to get right with Jesus. He welcomed sinners and tax collectors and ate with them. And he spent so much time with the lowlifes of society and addicts that he was accused of being a drunk himself. He had compassion on crowds when they were hungry. He embraced little kids who were rowdy and wouldn't sit still and they wouldn't keep their shoes on in church. That's good news for Jack Cooper. Uh, he's probably going to heaven. There you go. He healed lepers. Uh, lepers. Le- lepers. He healed lepers, the sick and the blind. He invites us to come as we are and not as we should be. Uh, Just for the record, let's see a show of hands, okay? Who among us has lived such a perfect and pure life that no dirt could ever be found about your past? 
Anybody? Jennifer? You good? Okay. None of us. None of us. No matter what your history is or what skeletons you have in your closet, no matter what heinous sins you might have committed, Jesus invites you to come to Him just as you are with no pre-qualifiers except a sincere desire to be forgiven for your sins. That forgiveness is grace. It's a gift that's freely given. And when you desire that gift, Jesus will give it freely with no conditions, no questions asked every time. Jesus was 100% grace and Jesus was 100% truth. In John 10, 27-30, Jesus said, My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Jesus is saying, you can bank on me. I won't save you from your sins one time and then leave you hanging. I am not a fickle God who turns his back on you when you mess up. I am not an angry accountant keeping track of your sins so I can throw lightning bolts at you or a probation officer looking to slap cuffs on you when you fall short of the mark. If you trust in my love, I won't give up on you. I won't turn my back on you. I won't let you go. Because he is 100% truth, you can come to Jesus with complete confidence that he will keep his promises. When he promises a complete pardon for your sins, he means it. We need grace. We need truth. We need Jesus. Verse 15 says, John bore witness about him, about Jesus. And cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. We're going to get into John's witness in depth next week, but this week we're going to focus on verse 16. For from his fullness we have received grace upon grace. God's grace is extended even to individuals whom we could never imagine could receive grace. In fact, one of the defining characteristics of grace is that it's completely undeserved. It can't be earned in any way whatsoever. God even extends grace to people that we perceive as evil. God's grace extended to Carla Faye Tucker an axe murderer from Texas, executed for her crimes. She had a jailhouse conversion and came to know Christ. She closed her eyes in life as a prisoner, and she opened them in heaven, free from her sin and her shame in the presence of Jesus. God's grace extended to King David, an adulterer and a liar and a murderer, God's grace extended to Jeffrey Dahmer, a sociopath and a serial killer from Milwaukee, Wisconsin, who professed faith in Christ on death row. 
His grace extended to Saul of Tarsus and admitted terrorists who hunted down Christians and ripped their families apart and was even more merciless than any enemy that Israel had faced before. He converted to Christianity and he became a new man with a new name, Paul. And he wrote this in 1 Timothy chapter 1. He wrote, Formerly I was a blasphemer and a persecutor and an insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and the love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of who I am the foremost, the best sinner in the world. Right there. Number one. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me, as the worst sinner, Jesus might display His perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in Him for eternal life. Paul is saying to Timothy, I'm the perfect example. Not only was I God's enemy, I was your enemy. I opposed everything you believe in and hold dear. But God gave me grace upon grace upon grace when I didn't deserve it. Grace is Christ on the cross looking down and seeing the most despicable things you've ever done, the darkest and dirtiest parts of your soul. And instead of saying, I'm going to punish you for that, He has compassion and says, I'll take care of that for you. For all of us sinners who aren't afraid to admit that we need a Savior, Jesus extends to us grace upon grace upon grace. And if you lived to be 172 years old and you sinned every day, you couldn't begin to exhaust the storehouse of grace that Jesus has available for you. Verse 17, for the law was given through Moses and grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So what about the law? What about all these rules in the Bible? Thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not eat shellfish, right? Uh, if your kids are sassy, take them to the edge of town and stone them. Uh, if you've got a fever blister, don't come to church because you're unclean. What about all those thou shalts and thou shalt nots? Romans 8, 3 and 4 says, For God has done what the law could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin for sending jesus as a man he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled now i'm going to give you a cornbread translation of that when we couldn't fulfill the requirements of the law to get in good with god jesus did it for us sin is wrong and sin deserves to be punished, and the righteous punishment for sin is death. Jesus took on flesh, moved into the neighborhood with a U-Haul full of grace and truth, and took that punishment for us. Instead of giving us the punishment that we deserve for our sins, God lavishes His love on us. 
Jesus, in dying on the cross, took all the worst judgment that even the worst sinner deserves. And he gifted us with the perfection required to enter heaven so we no longer have to fear God's judgment. Instead, we can enjoy God forever. Instead of damnation, grace gives us salvation. Last verse. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He, Jesus, has made Him known. In the Old Testament, one of the persistent themes that we see is that if anyone sees God, they are absolutely obliterated. Moses asked God to show him His glory in Exodus 33. And God says, no, but I'll let you catch just a glimpse because you will die if you see me. Isaiah 6. Isaiah has just a, a, a vision, a waking dream of God. He doesn't see God in the flesh. He has a vision of God in the throne room. It tears him apart. He says, I am undone. And what that means is he's he, he psychologically and emotionally and physically just ripped apart. John is telling us here, though, do you want to see God? Look at Jesus. In John 14, 8 and 9, there's a scenario where Philip approaches Jesus. It plays out like this. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and that's enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you this long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever's seen me has seen the Father. If you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. When we make our biggest mistakes in life, our earthly fathers give us advice. Don't do this, do that. But not our God. Johnny Erickson Tata wrote, God, like a father, doesn't just give advice. He gives himself. I'm going to ask our musicians to come. This is what God showed us with the gift of Christ on the cross. Grace. Being rich in grace, he didn't give us what we deserve. Instead, He gave us Himself. So don't ever think that there are sinners so bad or that your sin is so bad that grace can't reach you. God doesn't know any hopeless cases. One of my favorite pastors is a man named Ray Pritchard. And he wrote this. He wrote, Are you weak? So am I. Are you needy? So am I. Are you guilty? So am I. Are you frail? So am I. Are you like dust? So am I. And he wrote, And God says to us, His weak, needy, guilty, frail, dusty children, I know you through and through. And I love you anyway. Come to me. Rest in me. 
make me your rock. God's grace in Christ is more than enough for all of us. Amen.